Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Bill Donahue. Amber McKinney is out this week, but I am joined by our other intrepid co-host, Alex Lawson. Alex, how you doing? I'm doing good, Bill. Thanks for asking. I uh, I wanted to pull out from the from the depths of the Law360 chat, I wanted to pull out a uh, conversation we were having yesterday or the day before for the listeners, because you... I don't want to mischaracterize your your take here, but we were you kind of just sua sponte told me that you've you find it bad or you find it weird when people when people use the middle initial V in their names because it seems like their first name is litigating against their last name. I mean, uh, that is my exact line. Yes, I, well, I can you expand on that at all? I don't think it's bad or anything. I'm just saying when I see somebody with the, you know, Victor as their middle name and they're they're dropping it with an initial. Yeah. I do think that their first name is in a long-standing, contentious legal battle with their last name. A landmark Supreme Court case. Sure, um, right. The you you saying that made me realize that I that you don't see that initial very much. At least at least no. I don't. Um, and then I got to thinking of in Kramer versus Kramer. I can't remember if I've said this before. The movie Kramer versus Kramer, they spell out VS in that movie, even though it's about a court case, which is really mm-hmm. annoying. Um, but uh, anyway, if you're out there with the V, um, tread lightly, I guess, because we this is full legal reporter or, brain on. I was going to say at least here, don't uh, <laughs> don't ask people with rotted legal reporter yeah, brains right. what they think about your name. At least <laughs> I guess that's really the takeaway here. Yeah. Um, um, we got a good show today. We're going to have we talked with uh, did a little Supreme Court. Check-in update with Jimmy Hoover, uh, Supreme Court reporter, co-host of The always, Term. Always good to talk to Jimmy. Yeah, and there was, uh, it was sort of a busier-than-usual time uh, up at the court, so we thought it would be good to kind of dip our toe back in, get people up to speed on what's going on there. Some lingering Trump-era cases and a few other things uh, of note. So, and of like course, we will, we will talk about... Uh, Taylor Swift at the end of the show in there's, case you know stick around for that it's there's, there's, an some, important, there's some more good stuff with that it's an important uh update for the Swifties but I wanted to start uh with one of our old favorite chestnuts the varsity blues case uh, I back. don't want your life I don't want your test results for college um the uh this of course is the case that saw um parents uh procuring phony test results for their kids and in some cases um falsifying their athletic records to get scholarships and get admissions to uh elite colleges now i know this is difficult for you to talk about bill because this case involves uh stolen valor from people who wrote crew and i know this is sensitive for you i don't know i want to give you some some air to talk about that if you want is it show canon that I rode crew i mean i did it fairly badly in high school it's not like i was it's not like i was a you know qualifying for the olympics or anything but okay. uh but yeah i mean uh well i know, I mean, I don't I, I'm, know. Af- I'm offended <laughs> okay, i'm deeply great. offended as long as we have that on the record this case does not involve one of the uh the the fake athletes um the the headlines for this case of course have been dominated by actresses felicity huffman and Lori laughlin uh but there was a big law angle here too uh former wilkie farr and gallagher partner gordon kaplan was among the first parents that copped to fraud charges in this scandal in 2019 really funny because we're a legal trade publication and while everyone we also write about felicity huffman and Lori laughlin but this is like our version of a huge celebrity partner at at a prestigious law firm going down on charges like this so at the time when kaplan pled guilty 
he there was talk of him possibly losing his law license or some other kind of professional sanction, uh, which can happen ha- happens quite a lot in in uh, after people um, are convicted of a felony. But uh, this week, there was a disciplinary panel that gave Kaplan something of a reprieve, saying uh, that his license would only be suspended and not terminated. So that uh, that has now resolved itself. The folks like Kaplan who were involved in this case, you know, big, important, but but sort of like regular rich people that, yeah. that were the attorneys <laughs> and the, you know, yeah. I think those are the interesting aspect of this case, because so many of these people were, you know, they were wealthy enough to go and do stuff like this but They're they sort weren't of discreetly the people, rich right know. well they weren't the people who were going to go and buy a building those people just do this stuff all the time and yeah. get away with it it was this middle class of rich person who was sort of yeah. you know fumbling around trying to bribe their kids into college but that's all a long way of saying explain who like who this guy is and what he did and and yeah. you know how we got to here yeah uh that's 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 astutely put by you i think um you know gone are the days for these people, anyway, of just putting your name on the chem lab or whatever. We got to right. be a little more creative here. Um, so Kaplan pe- uh, pled guilty in 2019 to mail fraud and conspiracy charges for uh, he paid uh, a guy named Rick Singer, who's sort of the, the, the ringleader of this uh, whole operation. He paid him a cool 75 large to have a proctor uh, basically change the answers to his daughter's ACT test. Um, uh, worth noting, she uh, he made sure that the proctor could secure her a score of 32, shy of the perfect 36. I guess he was trying to be uh, discreet or something. Um, That's smart. But, but in, yeah, right. Clearly it Not worked out. Not smart enough, clearly No, enough. no. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, for that, he was, like like I said, he was, I think, he was, like, maybe the fourth or fifth parent to, to plea, to cop a plea here, and he was sentenced to a month in prison, 250 hours of community service, and a $50,000 fine, all of which he has uh, served, so he's sort of evened the ledger there. Uh, could have been a lot longer. The government had pressed for as long as eight months in prison. They argued that he... And they 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 harped on his position as a lawyer in making these arguments. They said this, you know, this is supposed to be a profession of honorable men and women, and this is a betrayal of that very basic understanding. Right. Uh, most notably, they pointed to uh, phone-tapped, uh, uh, or, or rather recorded phone calls between Kaplan and the 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 main guy Singer uh, after they put a tap on Singer's phone the feds did where uh, Kaplan uh said this about uh arranging the fraudulent uh test uh for his daughter he said quote to be honest I'm not worried about the moral issue here I'm worried about if she's caught doing that you know she's finished so pretty candid with his uh with his <laughs> thinking there so, okay, so you mentioned that he served his time and, um, uh, you know, the, the actual criminal repercussions are, are over with now. But we're talking about in terms of the context of him being an attorney, him being, you know, a professional. We're talking about the blowback there, right? Yeah. Uh, important to note, I think, off the bat that it already cost him his job. I said he was a former partner at Wilkie Farr, and that's because um, shortly after his arrest, um, he, uh, the firm released a statement, um, that he, uh, was no longer with them. So he's lost a job over it. Um, soon after that, the New York state Supreme court, uh, sort of their, their watchdog, you know, uh, uh, attorney oversight panel began considering whether to strip him of his law license. And, um, the appeals division opted against that this week. They said that a two year suspension retroactive to the plea, 
uh, is appropriate. So that means he can once again practice law in New York starting this November. It dates back. He was he was he he pled in uh, November of 2019, I believe. So it dates back to that time. Mm-hmm. The panel wrote uh, that suspending instead of revoking, uh, quote, properly balances respondents criminal conduct with the with the substantial evidence in mitigation, the protection of the public, maintaining the honor and integrity of the profession and as a deterrence to others from committing similar misconduct. Well, you meant I mean you mentioned a bunch of different things that the that they were weighing here. What exactly do they weigh when they're making these kind of decisions? I mean, like what what get gets balanced in this analysis? Yeah, there's lots of different stuff. There were there were a bunch of letters uh, submitted to the panel here that basically attested to Kaplan's character. Um, they cited his extensive pro bono work with his former firm. Uh, they also like any like any kind of uh, you know sort of judicial body here. They weigh past action, and they know and they noted that he had no record of any kind of disciplinary uh, mm-hmm. action against him or any kind of ethical misstep. And that sort of they came they they taking that and other factors on balance. Um, they basically concluded that it's basically an aberration, and he's paid his debt to. Um, not only to society, but to the the the, the profession at large. Um, one of the things that came out from the from the uh, the opinion that they that they circulate is that um, you know Kaplan is really kind of humbling himself before the judges. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of what a lot of this stuff comes down to. The order that they released this week included really long passages of testimony from Kaplan about the remorse that he felt and how he sort of found himself in this uh, situation committing. Committing a crime. Uh, a pretty instructive quote here. Uh, quote, uh, this was hubris. It was arrogant. It was about me, not about my child. That took a lot of self-realization. It was deep insecurity, I think. I frankly think a lot of people in my former profession have this notion of having to prove yourself all the time. It overwhelmed me and it destroyed my life. I destroyed my life. So he's speaking sort of to... <laughs> read, read one way. He's saying that it's it's uh, very difficult to be a lawyer, uh, and uh, you know I was under a lot of stress and things like that. But you know he 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 showed remorse, and that weighs uh, uh, weighs in his favor with the panel. So he will uh, uh, be allowed to resume practicing law later this year. Um, now, after a, after a story like that, I don't know about you, I could use uh, a cold can of some. Uh, some adult flavored seltzer. How about you, Bill? That's a that's a pro segue right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, again, I don't like to draw attention to this stuff, but this is this is how I make my money. So yes. So um, as Alex so just beautifully alluded to, we are <laughs> going to talk about uh, hard seltzer as our second story today. Yeah, one second, actually. Okay, that's much better. Um, no, I'm kidding. This is not amber. This is not hard seltzer. This is normal club soda. Okay. So, um, hard seltzer has surged in popularity over the past two years. Yeah. Uh, many people have probably had a White Claw or a Truly by now. Um, they both seemed to sort of burst on the scene in 2019. And then it just kept going last year. Uh, uh, the sales of, of hard seltzer, spiked seltzer, it's also sometimes called, um, grew by more than 160% in 2020 to reach more than $4 billion in sales last people, year. So, people dealt with the pandemic in different ways. You know, some people exactly. did puzzles, some people started working out, some people cracked uh, more hard seltzer than they did uh, the year prior. <laughs> so as typically happens when uh, there is a booming new industry, uh, 
lawsuits were not very far behind. So last week uh, we saw Anheuser-Busch InBev, uh, one of the biggest beer companies in the world, hit a rival company called Constellation Brands with a very interesting lawsuit over the launch of a new Corona seltzer. Um, it's, It's interesting because it sort of touches on a lot of different areas of the law. We've got antitrust and merger review, Mm -hmm. intellectual property, the meaning of contracts. It's a very interesting case that sort of all revolves around seltzer as it should. As it should. (laughs) Yes. I was say, I mean, don't don't sell yourself short in the in the in the seltzer boom. I know you're a big proponent. I'm not suggesting you're impartial here or or that you're not partial here. Um uh but uh I've always considered you a really good ambassador for the summer of seltzer. Regardless of brand, but you know. I did refer to 2019 as the summer of seltzer on many occasions. You did. It was Quite a good a lot. time. I yeah. I had a I had a blast. That's true. Um, but let's go back a couple of years before the summer. Yeah, of I know seltzer. this runs this 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 runs deep. It was so okay. So back in 2012, uh, Anheuser Busch InBev announced that it wanted to buy this. Uh, it's Grupo Modelo. So huge Mexican beer maker. They make Modelo as yeah. you probably could could guess but they also make uh corona is probably the one they are best known for making that was a deal valued at about 20 billion dollars so it was a big it was a big merger Mm -hmm. um that deal capped off years of consolidation in the beer industry ab Mm -hmm. inbev itself was this sort of multinational frankenstein that had been formed just a couple years earlier by the combination of various companies um, and at that point, the U.S. Uh, US regulators ha- seemingly had had enough. So um, the DOJ filed an antitrust lawsuit to block this $20 billion merger, saying that it would reduce competition in the U.S. to the point where AB InBev could could jack up beer prices and wouldn't face enough competitive pressure to, to be stopped from doing so. The government wants you to have lousy beer at a at an affordable price don't worry about it uh, it was very funny to read some of these press releases from back then because oh, sure, they were like yeah. they were like this will impact america's ability to buy cheap beer we are angry <laughs> about this we can so, okay. we, we we cannot stand for that yes so uh, to get to try to deal with this lawsuit ab inbev offered some key concessions for this deal so mm-hmm. among them was uh, the, an agreement to divest control of the Corona brand and the other brands run by Modelo in the U.S. market. Mm. AB InBev would keep control outside the U.S., but uh, they agreed to they would agree to perpetually license the rights to these beers in the U.S. to a company called Constellation Brands, which is no small company. I mean, they were one of the biggest wine and spirits companies in the world. Um, but so they would give them control of these brands in the U.S. And the move worked. In yeah. April 2013, the DOJ agreed to settle this case uh, and and let the merger move forward with these concessions. So AB InBev was able to buy Grupo Modelo. So the merger the merger goes through. We're all paying competitive prices for our uh, baseline beer choices. What are we still doing talking about this eight years on? So this is where we start to get into the seltzer territory because earlier, uh, early last year, Constellation announced that it would be launching a brand of Corona hard seltzer. Um, as anyone who buys beer or goes to liquor stores has noticed in the last year, there are many, many 
new seltzer brands that these things the multiply in the fridge i'm convinced there's there's yes. new ones every time i go yeah so white claw which is sort of a little independent company they make mike's hard lemonade and truly which is owned by sam adams they are still by far the biggest players here but we've gone in the last two years from about 10 brands back in 2018 to more than 60 last summer so everyone has taken notice of this booming demand for these seltzers so Corona Seltzer was Constellation's play here, and it seemingly did pretty well. Um, it's it's not as it's it's nowhere near those two big top players, but it is a yeah. very viable brand for Constellation. The company announced earlier this year that they're going to be launching new flavors. That that the brand was doing very well. There's just one problem here. AB InBev now says that that years old deal that gave Constellation control of the rights to Corona does not allow them to launch a seltzer brand. And um, last week, we saw them head to court to try to get a, a, a ruling that says, no, you were not allowed to launch this brand. Yeah, the old the old ghost of the antitrust settlement looms its, uh, looms its head again. What is the actual... Can we get into the nuts and bolts of the legal claim here? Like I said, there's, there, there's an agreement on the books... It says certain things. It doesn't explicitly say other things. What are they? What are what are they claiming in the lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, as I was working on this story, I was going back and reading some of the old coverage of the deal at the time, and a lot of different outlets portrayed uh, this merger settlement as a deal for the sale of Modelo in the U.S. But that's not exactly what happened. Constellation instead got what's essentially a perpetual license to the trademarks to Corona and these other brands. Um, in the lawsuit that was filed last week, AB InBev says that that the agreement gives Constellation a certain amount of flexibility here that they can do things with these brands, but that it only covers beer. It doesn't cover other products. You're not mm. allowed to use Corona for whatever you want. You're allowed to sell this beer that we gave you the control of. The quote from the complaint. Corona Hard Seltzer is neither a beer nor a Mexican-style beer. It is a flavored seltzer made with alcohol from sugar. Constellation has never once used the word beer in any of its tens of millions of dollars in television commercials for Corona Hard Seltzer. So what they're saying is, we didn't sell you this. We we gave you the right to sell one type of thing, and you're using it for something else. You can't innovate your way into an expansion of this license, okay? Everyone's everyone's on the cutting edge of the seltzer boom, but you know, like they, they, they are saying that there are constraints here. Um, have we heard from Constellation? Is there is there even a general response to the to the allegation? Yeah, I mean on on a on one level they say, look, this is just on the very merits of this case. This is uh, ridiculous because uh, the 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 sort of industry standard and the the general legal standards that are applied here is that hard seltzer would be covered by this license, that it would be classified closely enough with beer that it would that it would be covered by this licensing agreement. But the other more interesting angle here is getting back to this uh, origin story that I told earlier about how Constellation came to control Corona. Mm -hmm. This deal was done to alleviate competitive concerns by maintaining Corona as a serious competitive force against AB InBev's beers. Yeah. And I... I don't think I need to tell you that AB InBev controls their own seltzer brands. They have a Bud Light seltzer. They have a Natural Light seltzer. They own Bon & Viv. Yeah. So they, we are getting into tricky territory here when you have this deal was done. Getting rid of these brands was done to alleviate competitive pressure. And now you're bringing this lawsuit mm -hmm. against someone for using those brands in a way that you say they can't do. Um, so Constellation really hit on that in their, in their response, saying that basically, you know, Eight years later, AB InBev is legally going after the, the independent entity that this deal was designed to create. Quote, 
While we generally don't comment in specific detail about matters involving litigation, what we can say is that we're frankly surprised by this development. We find these claims to be completely without merit and a blatant attempt to restrain a strong and well-established competitor in a high-growth segment of the U.S. beer category. So they are not mincing words. They are willing to say, you know, they're willing to sort of call out the connection to this old deal and say, look, this is not just about a trademark licensing deal. Yeah. If it was, it would be a whole different story. It is the, a trademark licensing deal that was born out of competitive concerns. And if you're going to sue us for violating it, we're going to bring up those competitive concerns this time around. I'm Noah Feldman, Harvard Law professor and host of the podcast Deep Background. My new audiobook, Takeover, reveals how the Federalist Society became the most influential legal organization in U.S. history and captured the Supreme Court. Justice Amy Coney Barrett is the sixth justice who is a current or former member, and there are only nine justices in total. How do they pull it off? What does it mean for America? And is there anything legal progressives can do to fight back? In Takeover, you'll hear the voices of Federalist Society insiders and archival Supreme Court tape that provides historical context. You'll come to understand how potential divisions within the conservative legal movement will shape what happens next as the Supreme Court makes decisions that will affect every American. Takeover is available on pushkin.fm, Audible, and wherever audiobooks are sold. Visit pushkin.fm for more details. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. This time of year is usually the calm before the storm at the Supreme Court, but this week we got a sort of unusual flurry of activity. So here to break it all down for us is a friend of the show, Jimmy Hoover, Law360's Supreme Court whiz and the host of our sister show, The Term. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Hey, thanks for having me on. So first, right off the bat, we let's talk a little bit about... Some of these cases, we saw the court, it seemed like they were clearing off some of these lingering, uh, you know, cases from from the, the, the Trump era. And we got one that was about tax records, which we've been talking about for years now with uh, with former President Trump. But um, talk us through what the court did this week uh, with that case. Yeah, so on Monday, the court turned away Trump's kind of long pending request to block the enforcement of a subpoena for his business and tax records that are being sought by the Manhattan District Attorney um, in his own investigation of Trump and his businesses. Uh, the, the request had been pending for weeks, and it, you know it wasn't clear exactly whether the Supreme Court was interested in it, but now we know that they are going to let that grand jury process in Manhattan play out as the DA continues to investigate Trump. Now, if this case sounds familiar, it's because the court obviously last term had kind of weighed into the issue of whether the DA could, in fact, seek these records from Trump's you know, long-term accounting firm, uh, Mazars, or whether uh, the president had absolute immunity. And the court last term decided that, no, the, the, the president didn't, in fact, have immunity from the grand jury process, sent the case back. That kind of you know, triggered the uh, subpoena process to play out. Trump had made some additional arguments about how uh, the subpoena was overly broad and it was basically being used as a p political tool by the Manhattan DA. And that, you know, 
basically those proceedings go all the way up to the Supreme Court, which yeah. on Monday they finally basically closed the process. And we now know that the Manhattan DA now does indeed have those records and they will probably be shown to the grand jury soon. It's not clear whether they'll be public ever just because yeah, it's a right. grand jury process right. and it's secret um, unless, you know, there's some kind of charges filed sometime in the future in which potentially, you know, the broader public could see some of that evidence. The other remnant of the Trump era that was on the court's docket this week is, um, surprisingly, there is still more to say about litigation stemming from the 2020 election. I thought uh, for sure we were done with this, but it seems like there's more to say. What uh, what actually uh, went down this week? So I think we all kind of knew that at this late stage, the Supreme Court had pretty much decided it wasn't going to get involved in this election litigation, although now they've gone through the formal process of actually like turning away a lot of these yeah. um, petitions from, you know, Republican litigants, including President Trump, challenging election results and, you know, battleground states that that Biden had won. I, I, the one more thing that at least Thomas Alito and Gorsuch had to say, uh, which is that they wanted the court to revisit this particular issue about um, the mail-in ballot deadline in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, the, uh, if you recall, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had ordered the extension of the deadline for mail-in ballots by three days from election day to three days later. Um, And that seemed to be at least one case that some of the conservative justices were interested in. Now, they kind of deadlocked on whether to do anything about it prior to the election. And there was some kind of speculation as to whether after the election, the court was going to visit the issue. Obviously, the election is over. Biden decidedly won, and that case wasn't going to make one difference one way or the other because, you know, I, I don't think it was more than a few thousand of these ballots that would have mm-hmm. been, been invalidated had mm-hmm. that ruling been overturned by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. But in any event, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch kind of say that they think that the Supreme Court should have taken up the case. Um, it, it should have clarified that, you know, it's only up to the state legislature to decide the manner of federal elections and, you know, that going forward, this is something that they should have clarified. Um, what was notable about it was that Alito wrote a dissent joined by Gorsuch. Thomas wrote his own dissent in which he kind of uh, parroted some of the rhetoric about uh, widespread yeah. voter fraud that, you know, obviously President Trump and his allies were making in the in the weeks before and indeed after the election. And critics definitely pounced on him for that, although he did admit that, you know, the, the issue of these late arriving mail-in ballots wouldn't have made a difference in this case anyway. Mm-hmm. And he also concedes that there was no widespread evidence of fraud in mail-in ballots, but he says you know, quote, an election free from strong evidence of systemic fraud is not alone sufficient for election confidence. Also important is the insurance that fraud will not go undetected. So make of that what you will. But some people seem to think that he was kind of giving oxygen to some claims of fraud. Yeah, it's very interesting stuff. Um, So those were dealing with, you know, previous cases. But we also got uh, some interesting cert grants this week that, um, you know, are setting up the cases that we're going to be watching looking ahead. Tell us about those cases that the court decided to take on. Yeah, there were two interesting cert grants um, that the court has now pretty much added to its fall calendar because the rest of this term is pretty much full up. Yeah. Um, And they involve kind of Trump era policies that the Biden administration is actually reviewing as we speak. So it's possible that these cases won't actually be heard, but I'll just give you kind of a rundown of what they are anyway. Um, One of them involves uh, a Trump policy whereby doctors who receive federal funds for family planning services uh, 
are prohibited from helping patients access abortion services. So this is known as the abortion gag rule, um, mm-hmm. and it's currently being reviewed by the uh, the Biden Department of Health and Human Services. Another one is the so-called immigrant wealth test. Um, this is the uh, Trump-era Department of Homeland Security's rule, uh, public charge rule, that essentially makes it harder to get green cards for those who are considered, you know, more likely to use public benefits. And obviously critics have called mm-hmm. it kind of a wealth test for immigrants. Um, and so that is another one that's that's currently under review for the Biden administration. But should they still be on the books come fall, we'll hear the Supreme Court kind of weigh into the merits of those. Obviously, important to note, like you say, that it, it, it could be mooted. But obviously, we're talking immigration, talking abortion. That is stuff that court watchers um, is always sort of high on their radar. Finally, did want to talk about a brand new cert petition filed today, Thursday, that deals with uh, it's a legal challenge of Harvard's uh, affirmative action admission policies. This case gotten a lot of eyeballs in the lower rungs uh, in the circuit court and things like that. Um, what are we watching for here? How, what are the what are the basics? Well, this has kind of been a a, a long expected and highly anticipated petition from Students for Fair Admissions. Um, And this is the anti-affirmative action group that sued Harvard, alleging that it's, you know, race conscious admissions policies discriminate against Asian Americans. And I think what we had all kind of expected this to come. And I think what was notable about reading through the petition is just what they're asking the Supreme Court to do, which is to overrule its 2003 landmark decision in the case Grutter v. Bollinger, which essentially upheld affirmative action policies in higher education admissions processes and get rid of those entirely. There's a larger legal fight. Exactly. This is way way bigger than just Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. This happens to be the Harvard kind of test case for that that new theory, but obviously it's a way different court than the one that heard this 2003 landmark affirmative action case. And so, you know, it remains to be seen just how the new makeup of the court is going to affect the court's willingness to kind of wade into this territory. Yeah, I wouldn't be uh, I wouldn't be shocked if we have you back on the show next fall to talk about any of these final three cases we've talked about here. Um, well, Jimmy, I feel like I'm all up to speed on everything that happened this week. We really appreciate you coming over. Uh, I would like to tell everyone to if you want to hear more about anything that we talked about today, please head on over and uh, listen to Jimmy's show. The term they have their own feed. It's on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Jimmy, we really appreciate you coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, Jimmy. like to end our show with something offbeat a few weeks ago we talked about a theme park suing taylor swift uh turns out she can file lawsuits too what's that all about bill yeah this is one of our patented offbeat updates which yes. is sort of hard to say um yes <laughs> true yeah, we 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 talked a few weeks ago about a sort of sort of questionable trademark lawsuit that someone had filed uh, a theme park called Evermore had filed against Taylor Swift over her album of the same name. Mm-hmm. So uh, she sued them back this week, which um, 
It's kind of ice cold, but it's also kind of it was it, it you know it was kind of low hanging fruit. She claims that th- this theme park that sued her for years was using her music without a license. Which, if you're gonna <laughs> if you're gonna sue a very deep pocketed person, I would definitely make sure beforehand that you had all you had your house in order when yeah, it came that's to a- this kind of thing. That's a classic blunder. I mean, the same thing happened to me when I opened my theme park that was called Elton John's Greatest Hits. And then the lawsuits <laughs> just started lawsuit flowing just, in. I didn't understand it at coming. all. Um, uh, but, what, but yeah, this is kind of crazy. The, uh, the my how the turntables have uh, turned or whatever. But sure, what, is, sure. yeah, what is she? Uh, so she's saying that they that they were just playing the music sort of wantonly without her permission. I just can't get past the idea of you operating an Elton John themed uh I just, I, I just want to go more into that, but let's let's talk about this for a second. So yeah, it wasn't even the theme; that was just the name. It was uh, uh, right. I just I, I I it was like some absurd Dadaist thing. But anyway, right. Yeah, go ahead. Um. So if you run a bar or a restaurant or say a theme park, you buy a license from uh. They're, they're these performance rights organizations. You buy a blanket license yeah. that lets you play music out loud. It's not a very complicated situation. You pay some small fees and you have this right to use huge catalogs of music that most that mostly covers uh, you know, it prevents you from from infringing anyone's rights when you play music. What what Taylor Swift is claiming is that they were repeatedly contacted by these organizations saying, you need to pay for this music, and that they just didn't. And um so, like I said, it's not like she's really reaching here if this is true. It's, yeah. It was a pretty basic breach in what they were supposed to be doing to be operating a commercial business. Um, I thought one very interesting part of this was that uh, in the lawsuit, they say they were notified about this by a a former employee at the park, reached out to Taylor Swift's attorneys after this first lawsuit was filed and told them about this, told them that... Oh. Um, the uh, what what they say is happening here is that the I, I don't know if everyone listened to last to the to the show last time, but um, this is a sort of cosplay fantasy park. There's yeah. actors walking around as fantasy characters. Apparently, a, according to this lawsuit, what is happening is that they are sometimes performing copyrighted songs, some of which are Taylor Swift's songs. So, one of those people or someone who worked at the park reached out to Taylor <laughs> Swift's attorneys and told them that uh hey, you know that theme park that's suing you? They uh they may be playing some of your music if you are at all interested in countersuing them. I'm uh I'm struggling a little bit with the concept of the park being like an open map Magic the Gathering type of thing, World of Warcraft type of thing that also features people singing like I knew you were trouble when you walked in or something. Like Look, I haven't dug too far into it. The I, hill you gnomes know, are 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 diving deep into the into the Swift catalog. Right. I don't know if it's like an orc singing some, you know, <laughs> singing a deep cut from a Taylor Swift album or what. Yeah. But um but yeah, I mean it's a good lesson in if you are going to sue someone who who would then perhaps be looking for a way to sue you back, don't give them an easy one. Uh, it, you know, I, I would, I would try to make sure that you have your house in order before you do something like this. Yeah. You got to be careful who you sue. Uh, that's, uh, that's sage advice on any occasion. And this one is no different. I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, thanks for being with me, Bill. It was a lot of fun. See you again next week, man. 
As always, we have a bunch of people to thank for helping us put the show on. We want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, as well as our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Contributing reporters this week are Jeff Overly, Matthew Santoni, Haley Knoth, and Chris Villani. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Say, please go to your podcast platform of choice, leave us a written review. It really helps people find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about today, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we will see you back here next week.